Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre- and post-game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack. In studio with me, I'm so happy to have Ben Stapleton. He's the executive director of the U.S. Green Building Council, Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Now, you sent an email to me, (laughs) (laughs) and I just want to just get it out there. You said that you're a Laker fan who was briefly a Clipper fan, and now you're a Laker f- fan again per a legal contract. What did you mean by that? Are you a flip-flopper? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I just want to say, you know, I grew up in the 80s, <laughs> so I, you know, I was, I was a big Laker fan, you know, watching Magic. Right. Uh, you know, everyone gets a little confused sometimes <laughs> in college. Um, yeah, you're experimenting. Experiment. There was a couple of years where you know Darius Miles and Quinn Richardson were doing that. You know the head, the head knocking thing. I got into it for like two years. It was the only tickets I could afford at the time. <laughs> and then I came right out of that and was a Laker fan again. And uh, a few years ago, a bunch of my friends. We all grew up here in L.A. Uh, we were going out to a Laker game, and one of my friends who was unemployed at the time. Uh, probably had a little too much time on his hands and uh, drafted a five-page legal contract um, that would basically commit myself and my descendants uh, to being Laker fans. What? And defines fandom, defines what it means to be a Laker fan. Uh, there's very serious repercussions involving dismemberment and death. Uh, so it's a real deal. And it, it is signed. And there was an attorney present when oh he signed it. Goodness. So apparently it is legally enforceable. Wow. Yeah. You guys are deep. Uh, it appears that way, yes. yes. So are you scared? Uh, not really. I'm not really scared of any of my friends that much, to be completely honest. <laughs> well, congratulations on this new position as executive director. Thank you. Tell us about your background and how you gravitated towards you know, what you're doing now. Um, well, you went to UCLA. I, I did go to UCLA. So I went to UCLA for undergrad and I went to USC for grad school, although I'm always a Bruin. I, you, know, you always have to go with your alma mater. <laughs> uh, there was actually about 30 of us in grad school who had gone to UCLA uh, for undergrad. Uh, and you know, I have one friend who who kind of became a little bit of a USC fan who was a Bruin, and I kind of lost a little bit of respect for him. <laughs> if he ever hears this, he knows I'm talking about him right now because I tease him about it all the right. time. I'm like, really? Didn't you go to UCLA? Aren't you a Bruin? Um, but yeah, I, I'm an LA native. You know, born and raised. I went to UCLA. Um, went to USC. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I was a kid, um, you know, I was I was very much into nature. My dad would take me hiking in the in the foothills here in LA all the time. Uh, my dad had originally hitchhiked out here from Wisconsin um, really? back in the 70s, which is a whole other story. <laughs> Um, but he was also always very into nature. And so growing up, I knew I wanted to be a naturalist. I had no idea what that meant, but I wanted to be a naturalist. And on my, I had one of those old school Casio keyboards and I made a song about saving the rainforest and I went around wow. in my school and played it everywhere. Uh, I was also a nerd too, and I still am a nerd. So just to be, <laughs> I love nerds, be very clear about that. Yes. Um, and so that, nerds you know, that cool. for me was part of the journey. Just, uh, you know, always cared a lot about nature, you know, Got older, went through high school. My dad had a little computer repair company, so I kind of worked in the family business and worked on weekends uh, building computers and websites. And when I went to undergrad at UCLA, kind of got into that world. And then 
got into real estate uh, for a while, uh, got into music, as I was talking about a little bit earlier for a little bit, although that-, that You created really... some beats, I heard. Yeah, it, it all kind of went down in flames for me when uh, <laughs> I had I had spent a lot of, you know, I had an MPC, I used to spin hip-hop freestyle sessions uh, in undergrad, I had a little home studio in my, like, my, my apartment, you know, my room in my apartment, and- uh, yeah, I made all these beats and put them on a CD and I played them for my grandfather and I was like super excited about wow. this. I'm like, I'm going to show him that I'm making music. Right. Like, he's going to think this is so cool. <laughs> and it was one of the most soul crushing moments ever because I played him this CD and we listened to it. And, you know, these are like beats I had made for, you know, they were hip hop beats, right? Mm-hmm. And this is in like early 2000s. And after we finished it, he was like, he was like, what is this? This isn't music. <laughs> You think this could be a job of some kind? And it was just like I was like, okay, yeah, that's not gonna gonna work out. Although to be honest, kind of like what I do now, I, even at that time, I built a whole business model and a business plan around building out a studio with a bunch of my friends. I organized, you know, probably six of my friends, and we were gonna go do it. And we written down a bunch of plans, and then yeah, you know, I just realized I was gonna be broke in two to three months, and so I got into commercial real estate instead. Wow. <laughs> um, so just uh, imagine yeah. if though you continued with those beats. Mm-hmm. Beats are really popular nowadays with the young. I hear folks. that. I hear that. <laughs> Apparently, it is a business for some people. Right. It's so funny how that that worked out. Um, and but even you know in real estate, you know, I always had this affinity for nature. And um, when I went to business school, um, I started business school in two thousand five. Clean tech was sort of just sort of becoming a thing that was out there, and I, I got really interested in the whole idea of social entrepreneurship. Uh, I wrote my entry uh, essay to, to business school on starting a venture capital firm uh, that invested in, in businesses that made a social impact, uh, but they did a good job at improving society really just because they were good businesses and fundamentally mm-hmm. sound. And um, I was an econ major in undergrad, so those things kind of always intrigued me about how you create change through you know business practice that benefits people. Yes, um, and that's one thing that we were talking about uh, before we came on yeah. air is how – you know, there's a balance and a lot of organizations now today are about profits, which I understand, you know, the news is about profits, you know, ESPN, we, it, it is, it's a business and you have to report to a board and, you know, earnings and stakeholders. But there's also a way that you can do stuff that is a benefit for our society. And even if you are part of that system where, you know, you're reporting to stakeholders, um, that's one thing I love about, you know, Disney is that, you know, these issues are important. And it's a major thing within the organization about how to make our community better. And I think companies like your company and, um, other companies, they can do that. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, so much of life is about balance, right? We all struggle to try to achieve balance. And yes. I think the same thing is true in, in the economy, right? You know, it's it's nothing without checks is, is going to be um, performing and its ultimate benefit to society in the right way. Uh, capitalism, you know, and companies exist to make money and that's okay. Mm-hmm. They just need checks. You know, even people, we have laws that govern how we interact with each other in order to keep us in line and, and mm-hmm. uh, keep society hopefully moderately peaceful, right? So um, there do need to be checks and balances. And, um, you know, kind of coming back to sustainability, you know, I think it's it's for a long time, I think the green movement was hurt by the perspective that we had to do these things because they were the right things to do, mm-hmm. even though that's okay and that's that's why we want to do them. Um, really, I think the, the perspective should have been that these are the things to do because 
if you look at the if you take your perspective and shift it the right way, these are the things that are going to really benefit us and even make the most money over time. There needs to be a strong economic exactly. argument for that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so tell us about the US Green Building Council Los Angeles. Um, sure. So um, US Green Building Council Los Angeles is, is really um, the organization that leads the green building movement in the region. So uh, we cover all of um, the greater LA area as well as in the Inland Empire, all the way to the Arizona border. Um, and we have about 3,000 members um, that are really focused on um, leveraging green buildings as a way to make a more sustainable society for us here in this region. Um, you know, I think the really interesting thing about um, buildings in general is that buildings are really the fabric that knits everything together. So uh, the studio we're in right now, you know, the places we work, that we eat, that we, we shop, even hospitals and hotels, you know, everything that we do takes place in a building. Um, and so, you know, us as an organization – uh, really, that gives us the, the the entry point and to to really look at how do we affect transportation, mm-hmm. how do we affect waste, um, issues around water and energy use, mm-hmm. you know, air quality. All these things really are integrated into our built environment in so yeah. many ways. Uh, I was I was uh, looking at you guys coming in, and you had your cups of coffee. And, you know, I have my little cans here. I'm not going to say what I'm drinking because it's very, very... I won't rat you out at all. <laughs> okay, thank yeah, you. I thought about it, but I won't do that. But, yeah. you know, I finished one can and I looked at... I don't know if you saw me walking past these trash cans and I was like, no, I can't throw it in there. And then I was like, because ESPN, we have... They count the trash, like yeah. what you throw away and, yeah. and, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep it. And then I'm like, okay, I'll put it over here. But you think about that now. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, what type of waste are you creating? But I I love that I now think about it, you know, and you're in a building that is uh, aiding in you to, you know, do better. Mm-hmm. So tell me some of the things that you guys do or have done um, that is leading this effort for our environment. Yeah, I think you just you hit on something that's that's spot on. You know, I, you look at how waste is addressed and handled in the, in the buildings that we work in. Uh, we actually have a green janitors program, um, which we've worked with SEIU on and a group called the Building Skills Partnership, uh, where we have a, a course that we put custodial staff through. Uh, where they learn how to actually um, operate buildings in a sustainable manner. And uh, I have to say, to the point you're talking about waste, you know, for a lot of them, um, you know, they're just told that this is now a green building. You know, this is what we're going to do with waste. But and actually. people are like, what's that mean? Well, they're not trained how to do it. No one really knows. There's no there's no cultural shift. And so um, what really amazed me about this program is that, you know, for the first couple of weeks, the, you know, the janitors are kind of like, oh, is this going to be a waste of my time? I have to go to this class during my lunch break. Uh, and then a couple weeks later, they realize that they're actually the ones who really operate the buildings. They decide yeah. if it's green or not. They're the ones who turn off the lights. They're the ones who use the cleaning products and you know decide which ones they use and do they use them the right way. They decide how the waste is actually sorted and weighed and how that happens. And so they feel really empowered. They also realize uh, with a little bit of training to note uh, what things are happening in the building around mechanical issues or things like that that cost big dollars. And a couple weeks after that, a number of them said at, at their graduation that they went home and realized, hey, I'm using these green chemi- these chemicals at home that could be mm-hmm. harmful. And they replaced those chemicals with things that were healthier. They got their kids doing recycling programs. 
And at the end of this program, you know, we give them a stipend, they get a certificate that they graduated. Um, but it really created cultural change for them. And to me, that's really sort of the meat on the bone is mm-hmm. uh, how do we create cultural shifts that are actually going to enable us to live in a sustainable society? And that's really the biggest challenge, right? Um, right. And all coming all the way back to waste, you know, none of us really know what happens with our waste after we throw it in a trash can or this trash can or that trash can. And to create a, a cultural shift and a, and a mindfulness of this is actually the process. These are the costs and the benefits of what happens when I do X, Y, or Z with, right. with a can or with a banana peel. Um, we have to become more aware if we're actually going to get to a place where we can live with as many people as we've got, right? Actually, yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're talking about uh, the the sports industry as well and you know we go to these we go to the staples center we go to the forum uh can you talk about some of the things that we do as you know a a sports industry or having these arenas uh like in in fact like the lighting Mm -hmm. you know having green lighting what are some of the things that we we can do yeah and and frankly i you know i think um you know, John Marler, who runs energy and sustainability for AG, is doing a great job here with the facilities that you guys have here locally. Um, you know, look, sports have an amazing ability to inspire people. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how many of us turn out to go to events yeah. and spend a considerable amount of time and money. And I just have you to know. say, your your face just lit up when you started talking about sports. <laughs> I was just thinking of all the good times I've had going to sporting events. Uh, right. But the reality is, you know, those are also touch points for people and um, – you know, the more we can educate people as they go to these facilities that, you know, there is green lighting, that the waste is being sorted and weighed, and that there's a zero waste mandate for some of these facilities that, uh, you know, when they're hitting peak energy usage is at times that are causing huge demand spikes. And so, um, you know, I know AG's done things to install energy storage on site mm-hmm. to help offset that. And that's reduced a lot of AG's cost. So coming back to the economic benefits, there's there's real payoffs of why they would do that. Um, but the more we can educate people, that's the way things can operate and use these venues as a way to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the better off we are. And you know, man, would really love if if you know more athletes really owned and, and took on climate change and sustainability as an issue for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there probably are some out there that are doing that, but that would be an amazing thing, I think, to to really right. bring some some more awareness to. Yeah. Calling on LeBron. (laughs) Uh, So you're talking about your workforce development programs. So when the the people in your green janitor education program, when they were, well, it feels like for me what you're talking about is that you empowered them to see just how much power that they had in that position. Uh, Can you talk about that a little more and, and... how that can gravitate to some other programs that you guys are doing? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, so we offer other training. We have a, a green professionals training called G Pro that, that trains folks on green fundamentals. Um, we do lead training and well training, which are other green building certifications. Um, we're also doing resilience training right now. So um, we had someone who's worked with us for the past couple of years who's developed um, course content around resilience. 
Um, you know, what does that mean? What is that? Yes, uh, it can actually tell me. be defined in a lot of different <laughs> ways. Um, you know, I think from a sustainability perspective, it's a, it's about being resilient in the face of climate change and to climate shocks. Um, there's also a disaster component, obviously, you know, of that. Uh, how can we make sure that our communities, our businesses, our homes, everything is really prepared to be resilient in the event of these shocks, whether they're disasters, whether they're changes in our environment, whatever they might be. Um, and so we offer this training now. Um, and we're working in partnership with Metro on that, and we're just going to start rolling that out with Southern California Edison later this year to community organizations um, and businesses. Um, we also have a program we're doing right now with uh, Global Green as a partner oh, where folks right. who have homes have burned down um, in the Thomas Fire, the Woolsey mm-hmm. Fire, uh, we're matching them up with members um, of, of you know our organization uh, who do design work to help them do sustainable and resilient design for their homes. So they look at how to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And we've also built some some coursework and training around that. And we're now looking to make that more of some evergreen content because we know we know fires aren't going to go away. Yeah. Uh, so to actually have a package of training and then continue to use our member base to help those people and assist them with design after their homes have burned down, I think is a really amazing thing we can do locally uh, mm-hmm. to support our communities. Uh, because reality is, you know, our region is changing. I'm, as I said, I'm an LA native. Uh, I can. I have a couple of things I could probably tell you about that I've been involved with over the years. But oh, please do. <laughs> before I get there, before I get there. Uh, you know, I think one of the amazing things about this region is that L.A. suffers from a lot of the big city problems that every big city suffers from, whether it's water scarcity or air quality issues or waste. Um, but I actually think we have the potential to solve a lot of those issues here. Um, you look at the policy we have, not only as a state, but as a city. Uh, you look at the amount of, of wealth and intellectual capital we have here. You look at the amount of diversity we have here uh, in terms of people. You know, we're the largest populations of so many people outside of their home country in the world. And then you look at the fact that um, L.A. is a very unique city in that we have urban and suburban areas. Um, most other cities you deal with, you know, if it's San Francisco or Chicago, New York, they're very urban. Mm-hmm. But then you look at a lot of the, the country, probably 80 percent of the country is very suburban. In L.A., we have both of those. So we have the opportunity here to look at buildings and communities and systems that can serve urban and suburban. We have the policy to support that. So I think we have the potential to solve a lot of our environmental issues here in L.A. if we focus the right way. Um, and not only do we suffer from those problems, we can actually benefit and export those ideas out to the rest of the world and probably make money doing so in mm-hmm. the process. Uh, so you mentioned some of the partners. How do you partner with other agencies or companies to help with your mission? Um, that's a great question. So you know, it depends on, on what their needs are ultimately. And I think something we're really looking at now is how can we continue to create more value for our partners? So um, our members and our member base, you know, that's a huge amount of our value, that knowledge, that intellectual capital, that goodwill. We have a lot of volunteer-led activities. Um, we have committees that are really thought leadership arenas uh, within our organization. Um, so that's, you know, a way for people to get involved that can benefit everyone. Uh, we also have a responsibility, I think, as the um, talent pipeline for our industry in the region. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard. You know, I've been on this job now six, seven weeks, I think, and I've been trying to meet with two or three stakeholders a day. And for everyone, this this organization has really helped them find the next person who worked at their company. They found a job. Uh, they found an, an internship or volunteer opportunity that led to them doing something else that got them a job. So uh, I think you know we can structure and grow more of a, a structured pipeline for that kind of talent. But that's our responsibility. And we also help companies look at uh, everything they do. You know, from a building basis, you look at certifications. You know, whether it's LEED or Well. They look at how these buildings operate. They look at the materials that were sourced for those buildings. How were they produced? You know, is this building operating in an efficient, healthy uh, manner? Uh, what kind of systems are in place? Um, you know, what what sort of structure is there for 
the system that runs, you know, the HVAC, you know, how is, what's the timing on that? Mm-hmm. With the lighting, what are the controls that are in place? You know, how are all these things working together to make that an efficient asset? Mm-hmm. And then the materials that go into to building these buildings, how are, how are those sourced? How are those manufactured? Um, wow. Uh, you know, and health is such a big part of that. You know, you think of how much time we spend in buildings. Yes. And I see this as a really core issue for us over the coming years. We don't talk enough about the health in our buildings, you know. Yeah. Air quality has been proven time and time again to be much worse inside buildings than outside buildings. And we spend so much time, rightfully so, talking about, you know, cars and air pollution. Yes, but we don't talk at all about, you know, really the air quality inside our buildings. We don't have sensors to really measure what yes. the air is inside. Um, and so when, and when we took look about it, health, you know, one of the things I love about well, which is a certification around occupant health in buildings, is that it tries to take a proactive way of really looking at looking at that. So whether it's daylighting, air quality, water quality, uh, even things like your furniture and ergonomic support, you know, how are we promoting health inside of our buildings? Because that's where we spend eighty percent of our time. Yes, you know? uh, we were driving down Kawanga, uh Actually, it was yesterday, and my son. We were driving our son to school, and my son said, Dad, can I have your cell phone so I can, you know, can I please have your cell phone? And he <laughs> did. Dad goes, okay, uh, you can, but you have to answer uh, this question. How many cranes do you see? And he just looked out the right side of his window. He says, two. And then we're like, no, that's not correct. Look around, look around. There were four cranes up on like Kwanga, uh, yeah, Kwanga and hmm, Selma ish, mm-hmm. yeah. and they're all building. They're building all these buildings, and so we started talking about what is needed. And then they they have you know the, the bars. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what it, they put it in the cement. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, rebar. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> So my husband was teaching my son about, okay, that goes in the cement. And we're watching these buildings going up and talking about what goes into it. And I said, man, look at that building. I was like, I I wouldn't want that responsibility. (laughs) It's so much. So talk about the products that go in to making a building and how you guys are making that more sustainable or with our community to make it green? I mean, do you work with all of these people that are building all these? That's actually a a great question. Um, And you actually hit on another program we have right now, which is uh, with the state of California around um, environmental product declarations or EPDs. Um, So really working with people who manufacture things like rebar, concrete, glass, um, to make sure they're actually getting a a declaration of, of what the environmental footprint is of their products. Um, that's actually going to be mandated by the state uh, in uh, 2021, I believe, um, especially for, for buildings that are state-owned or publicly funded projects. Those are going to need to have products that have these EPDs for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating awareness around the fact that these things are requirements, that people are going to have to do that, uh, is really important. And then we actually assist people with that process and work with the state to provide them some funding to help get that done. That's a lot of work. Um, it is a lot of work. And we've got a very small team right now, which we're working on working on growing. Um, but that's just one example. You know, there's also a lot of really good information out there. I mean, that's education is really the core of what we do because mm-hmm. you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, certifications like LEED, um, 
you know, really look at these products and spend a lot of time building standards for how we build our buildings, how we operate our buildings, and the information's there. So I really see that as our responsibility to educate as much as possible. Yes. Uh, to create that cultural change, to build awareness. Uh, and you have to have that technical, you know, knowledge base to to go to because that's what leads you. But it's the awareness that makes people really follow through. And, you know, to your point, there's so much con- new construction going on. Um, and, you know, it's important we address those things. But the reality is a lot of the code these days for these buildings is – Almost at a lead basic standard level of certification. These buildings are pretty green, the new ones that are being built. But 98% of our building stock is existing buildings. And there's not as much that goes into how those are are operated or maintained to make sure that they're sustainable or green. Interesting. There's a building in Chicago that's all green. And then at the top, uh, you know, they collect the rainwater yeah. and the snow and, all. you know, everything. And then if... I, I don't know exactly the process. My my husband knows because he's all about you know <laughs> the architecture and building. So it the whole building is sustainable, and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did they do that? It's pretty amazing, right? It, it, it is amazing, and especially when you think about how much purpose and intent goes into creating something that way. And how long a building is going to be around, really. Um, you know, one of the challenges I think we face in the industry, and it sounds like your husband is a green building nerd, yes. like, like the rest of us. <laughs> yes. We're an organization of green building nerds, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but uh, is is the sooner you get involved in the process of designing or developing a building, you know, the earlier you can make those changes to, to put in things that capture, you know, rainwater, that capture groundwater. You can look at installing a green roof. And the sooner you do that, actually, your costs to do that are much lower. A lot of people, when they're building a building, they don't look at adding the sustainability attributes until mm-hmm. they're getting closer to that final design stage or closer to permitting. And then they look at adding these things that make it a, a green building or, or help it meet these standards. And they're like, oh, now this is adding so much cost. Well, it's like, yes, because you weren't thinking about it holistically right. from the beginning. And they're doing this to just comply at the mm-hmm. end. So there's, you know, coming back to how do we how do we change perspective and frame the lens so that people realize there's actually much greater economic value in doing things in a sustainable matter, a manner, especially from a green building perspective. You just got to look at a different time frame. Got to look at a different horizon. You got to look at, you know, if you look at the health and productivity and people in your buildings, and it's been shown through data that, People who work in healthier buildings are much more productive Mm -hmm. in those buildings, and the value of their productivity actually far exceeds their rent cost for the building. And there's tools out there now where you can start modeling this. JLL actually has a great tool right now where they're doing that, which is a big real estate firm. Because it's not – you know, we look at rent and we look at these things, the things that drive the equation. Yeah. But again, our perspective is just a little bit flawed. We're we're human beings, right? We can't look at everything in the manner that we need to to really understand what's happening. So – I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Did I answer your question? <laughs> and, and, and another thing is that uh, you you talk about the the mindset of someone that's doing these buildings that are are building these things, and a lot of the mindset is okay. How can we do it for cheap? How can we do it the and get? I don't want to. Well, yes, get away with <laughs> as much as we can. But I tell you one thing: there's this building that I know about that they did everything so minimal minimalistic Mm -hmm. that now it's costing thousands and thousands of dollars to to uh fix the problems that is caused by them being so cheap in the first place Mm -hmm. 
instead of, you know, doing it right the first time, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Uh, and, and a lot of developers do that because, you know, their time horizon, you know, they're going to build it, they're going to flip out of it, they're going to sell it. That's going to be somebody else's problem, you know, and, yeah. and you look at the cyclicality of the real estate market, you know, you can build something and create value just from building it and sell it. And, you know, the market could fall out and someone's, you know, they're going to end up having that building get repossessed through financing. And there's just this whole cycle of the problems keeping shifted to the next party. Yes. Um, and actually, the city really made a statement here. Um, there was an ordinance passed um, in the last couple of years uh, to really require benchmarking on energy and water use. In fact, this June, all buildings over 20,000 square feet will be required to be benchmarking their energy and water use. Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing training right now with... Um, students at uh, LA Trade Tech to actually oh. learn how to do that benchmarking work uh, so they can get jobs in the industry doing that going forward and get into energy modeling and other things. But building owners are going to be required to disclose what their energy and water use is. Yes. And then starting in the next couple of years, they're going to be required to actually do things to make it better. And they're going to get a, a grade on their building. So it'll be up, up there as a public thing people can check, whether it's a tenant, whether it's someone who's buying a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you start to think about, hey, what if what if we made this a requirement, someone sells a building, that they have to do certain items and disclose this kind of energy and water use, that's going to start to affect building pricing, right? That's right. going to start to change how people look at the asset they're buying. So the problem you're talking about when someone's building something on the cheap, they're flipping it and they're not, they don't even care. They're going to go do it again. They're actually creating a building that's going to be with us as a society, right, for mm-hmm. at least 40, 50, 60 years. Who knows? Much longer. Um, let's make them responsible now so that they have to actually communicate to the next party. Well, these are things we did on the environmental side. Well, what about the buildings that you say that were were built like earlier and you know, 50 years ago or whatever that aren't sustainable? Are you guys doing stuff to change that or work with those people? Because I know like Paramount's old. <laughs> you know, I've been in those offices and you go in and you could you know, like you talk about the right. environment and you, what are you breathing in you know like what's going on are you working with companies like that or yeah I, I, I think we have to um and that's where actually i think technology and innovation can really come and help us address a lot of problems so in my previous role actually right before taking this job i was the um you did beats I, well, <laughs> That was a much, much previous role, and it didn't really work out so well. I think I, I think I described that already. Uh, but I was uh, the senior vice president of, of operations and finance for the LA CleanTech Incubator. Uh, I had been around there since the very beginning and helped work on the original business plan. Got, That's downtown LA? Yeah, it's actually yeah. here in the Arts District of downtown at the LaCretz Innovation Campus. Uh, it's owned by the Department of Water and Power uh, and the city of LA. And the LA CleanTech Incubator has a um, lease and operating agreement for the building uh, which I helped negotiate and put together. So I was the the lead for the incubator on the development of the project. That's a great um, place. It's it's amazing in terms of, of the facility. The architect did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. But we were really intentional there about trying to build a community. I actually spent time when we were working on the project going around and touring other places that were economic hubs. And what decided their success or failure ultimately was whether they were successful in building a community. And that's an art, not a science. And we really wanted that place to be the epicenter of sustainability in the L.A. area. And so I went out and very purposely and brought in some nonprofits that I thought were really leading efforts to, mm-hmm. to make the city a better place. So, um, you know, Ciclavia is based there with us. A lot of people are probably familiar with Ciclavia. Yes. We've done those bike rides. 
you know, they've really opened up the city in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, that it hadn't been before, that people have really uh, got to experience and understand and learn about different parts of the city. Uh, River LA is based there with us. It's managing a lot of the development along the LA River. Uh, climate Resolve, which is a leader on climate policy. We brought all those groups together in that place but to mix with all of our startup companies in the technology space of clean tech so that these technologies could be brought to market in a way that they were actually being involved in the projects that we're leading. That these entrepreneurs, rather than just having a business perspective to what they're doing. Sure, they're already in clean tech. They're already making technologies that have an environmental benefit, but they could actually learn about the social side of what they're doing. They can learn about how being part of a cause and attached to a cause can actually make these products better and help their companies be more successful um, while creating more impact. So that was something we did very intentionally there. And coming back to existing buildings, there's some amazing technology out there right now to really address things like lighting we talked about earlier, um, sensors for for air quality, uh, materials for when you're redoing your carpets or your wood paneling or your walls. Um, There's great technology out there. Part of the challenge in the real estate industry is that building owners are very risk averse. Um, I'd say that, that... the built environment in general is one of the hardest places to implement new technology and for startups. Really? Because typically you have several people who make decisions on buildings. You have someone who's the financial decider. You might have someone who's the building operator, someone who's the property manager. They all have different incentives and different interests. Um, and actually to address that, um, we're going to announce in April we're starting a net zero building technology accelerator focused on zero carbon, zero energy, zero water, and zero waste technologies and buildings to accelerate those technologies to meet those gaps um, because we have a lot of legislation right now that you know, if you look out there, whether it's the Green New Deal and other things, these are these are great things, and, and it's good politically to push them. Uh, but when people talk about having zero water buildings, which all new developments in the county are going to need to be zero water, uh, net zero water here in the next the next couple of years. In fact, I think this coming year that's going to be required. The people who operate buildings will tell you we actually don't have technology to to run our buildings that way, and so we're trying to get technologies into an accelerator to address that gap and help them place pilots in these buildings. Because building owners, as I mentioned, are so risk-adverse, um, pilots are one of the best ways to bring people together because mm-hmm. when you structure a pilot the right way with a building engineer, with an owner, with everyone at the table, mm-hmm. and you get the right data as you go through it and then convey that the right way at the end, the best way to do things is – I mean the best way to learn things is to do them. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're going to be working on that program here over the course of this year to address some of these issues. Talk about zero water and what that entails. Um, just like the ring capture? Uh, well, yeah. that's interesting. Ring capture is part of it. You know, for most new developments, it's really an offset, right? So they're they're basically buying water rights from someplace else so that they're not adding, Man, the I, water rights. <laughs> they're they're adding uh, so they're they're not adding more water usage essentially to the value chain. But that's not really sustainable, right? Not everyone can do that. So um, you know, you look at uh, rainwater capture, you look at groundwater recapture. Uh, Measure W was passed last year in the county, uh, which is you know passing some liability to commercial property owners for the water that falls on their property. They're actually now responsible for it. There's actually they have to collect that water and figure out what they do with it. If it just gets wasted, they're going to be responsible for that at the end of the day. Um, because you look at our region, we can't afford to waste yeah. more water and ship it all out to the sea every time that it rains. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out how we capture that and keep it here locally uh, because we do know that we're going to have drought again. Um, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I was talking to an, a, a woman who works with wa- water in Pasadena and we're talking about – I was saying how uh, – wouldn't it be cool – and I know this is – you know. My brain going, oh, I did invent years and years ago the carbon capture. I didn't know the technology 
of it, but I was like, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of thing where it could suck in the air, <laughs> clean it, da, 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 and, and my friends were like, I... So you invented carbon capture? It's amazing. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Of course, I did not implement it. I just talk about it, you know, which is nothing. And then I'm watching the Discovery Channel, and there it is. And I'm like, that's what I was talking about. But, of course, right now it's not sustainable because it's it, it costs too much to operate. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out new technologies to make it more affordable that we can do the carbon capture. So, you know, let's talk about rain when it floods in. You know, Colorado, how can we implement a system that carries the water from Colorado to, you know, L.A. that's in drought? Or, you know, is there an infrastructure that we can do to move the water around the U.S.? But then the woman I was speaking with interviewing, she was like, yeah, but the water rights people are there's so much politics in in water. Water is absolutely crazy. I have have to say. I, you know, at, at the LA Clean Tech Incubator, I started a cluster, a cluster initiative there where we got together industry clusters in things like energy and water and waste, um, ag and all these other things. And uh, we were bringing people together around technology, innovation, and sustainability in these spaces. And in the water space, I'm an LA native. Like, water's always been an issue, right? I'm like, there's got to be someone who's working on this. And when we started gathering this group, our water cluster ended up being one of the most successful things we did because it turns out no one was really meeting together around water to talk about what's happening in technology innovation in that space. And in the state of California, I think there's over 1,300 different water agencies that control water. <laughs> you, you try putting in a systematic process to to move water across not only one state, but several states to do that. And you're talking about laws that have been in place for, in some places, yeah. two or 300 years governing water rights. And it starts to become so convoluted and complicated that um, people just stop trying. Um, the other challenge is for water, we pay so dramatically less than the actual cost of um, the water that we, we drink or the water that comes out of our tap. Um, and at some point, that'll come that'll come home to yeah. rest. You know, we, you know, you look at your water bill, right, mm-hmm. compared to your energy bill every month, and water bills aren't that, that, that much. And they've gone up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is what's reflected in our bills doesn't reflect the true cost of what it is to bring that water to us, the long-term cost of continuing to supply that water. Um, and so, you know, that's going to continue to be a challenge for us. Um, and, you know, we want to be the go-to source, and we are the go-to source for people who care about these kinds of issues here. You know, at the U.S. Green Building Council, um, we accept everyone. We're focused on sustainability. Um, we really want people to come to us who care about these kinds of issues because we're really trying to galvanize uh, and provide leadership and direction for those that care about the built environment and about sustainability in the places that we live. Yes. This is ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with the executive director of U.S. Green Building Council Los Angeles, Mr. Ben Stapleton. Ben, continuing to talk about water, how do you think we can change that with these laws that are, you know, so old and everybody's fighting over the rights for it? Like, how can we make it more about you know, what's of benefit for our community rather than politics? That's a, that's a great question. And I think that comes back again to education and awareness. Um, you know, what is it that we can control? What is it that we can manage? You know, even things like like cisterns that capture rainwater at our homes, those are things that we can implement, that we mm-hmm. can control. Um, you look at technology in the water space, whether it's um, 
gray water and on-site water um, recycling that can be reused um, for irrigation or for other purposes. Um, you know, the city's installed a purple line that will bring recycled water to a lot of places. Um, there's things that we can control. It's about creating awareness around the benefit of those things. It's about working to drive down the cost of technology to implement that for homeowners and for other folks, whether that's through rebates or through continued innovation in the space. Because, you know, politics is politics. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we want to get out there. We want to advocate as much as we can. We want to show that there's value in these things. and We want to elect people who feel the way we do. But I think it's very difficult sometimes as an individual to work that route because you, you feel like you have very little control and very little power. Uh, whereas people, there are things that we can control every day, right? Even, even recycling your can that you were talking yeah. about, that's, <laughs> that's a small example, but we've all grown, grown more aware of that. You know, what if we became a lot more aware of mm-hmm. water and different ways to use water? And we saw someone even just using their regular hose to water their plants for like, Hey, uh, have you, are you using you know rainwater? Like, why aren't you doing that? It's really easy. You can go get a cistern for less than a hundred bucks and there's a rebate to cap, you know, so there's ways to do all these things. It's again about education, awareness and cultural change. Well, talk about some of the, the uh, things that you guys are doing to uh, educate. Um, I know you guys have some events and stuff and meetings. Uh, Talk about that, how we can participate. Yeah. So um, we have uh, usually about four um, big events a year and then we, we do tours every month um, we do meetings with emerging professionals. Um, we're doing everything we can to really create thought leadership and awareness. Um, we have a big event coming in a- up in April, which is our municipal green building conference and expo. Uh, perhaps not the greatest name ever for an event, <laughs> but uh, it's been around. Um, this is actually its 18th year. And at that event, we actually honor public buildings that have made strides in the green arena. This year, we're providing an award to an elected official and to uh, providing a policy leadership award to a city that's really been leading in the region. Um, we do awards for buildings that have really demonstrated success. We typically have about 600, 800 attendees at that event. And during the course of the day, we have um, 24 classes that happen people can get credit for on a wide variety of topics. Uh, this year, the theme is on climate change solutions and the new abnormal um, we have other events. We have a, a big event called the Green Gala that we do at the end of the year, which is kind of our formal, you know, uh, big event where people dress up. Uh, but we also provide awards at that event and highlight projects that have really demonstrated leadership in the region. Uh, we have local branches. So uh, we're the L.A. chapter. Um, mm-hmm. We actually have six branches throughout the region. So San Fernando Valley, San Gabriel Valley, South Bay, uh, West Side, the Inland Empire. Um, I feel like I probably – Long Beach. I, yes, Long Beach. I feel like I missed one. Um, and we're looking at actually at expanding our branches now because this is such a big area and there's so many communities. Uh, we're looking at having a Coachella Valley branch. We've been doing some great things out in the Palm Springs area, um, the Conejo Valley, um, downtown LA having its own branch. And so uh, these are ways for people to get involved on a very local level. Uh, as an organization, we, we do a project every year called the Legacy Project. We send out an RFP and we get submissions for community projects. We provide $20,000 to help make that project happen, and we also bring our whole membership base of volunteers to help execute on it. Uh, this year, we're doing an acre garden in Almonte. Oh, cool. It's got um, food production. It's actually got a wellness area and a Zen garden for people who are dealing with a lot of stress in their lives. This is an area that has some of the worst air pollution uh, mm. in the state, uh, and it's a green space where students can come and people from the community can come to heal and have some space, learn how to grow food. Um, folks from our organization are doing – uh, landscape design. We're out there. We're planting plants. We're, we're digging and putting things in the soil. We're doing putting money into the signage and some of the structures on site. Uh, and that came through an RFP. 
this year, we're actually going to do it where we're going to award the branch that actually has the most members. We're doing a member drive in May and June uh, with this legacy project. And this is a great way that we're getting involved in the, in the community. Um, and it's a way for people to get involved also on a local level on their end. So it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to my phone right now because uh, there was this Netflix show that I was watching with my son. We were watching with our son about a young boy who created what's in Palm Springs to create the windmills. Oh, windmill. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do, do you know the movie I'm talking about? No. So this boy, and he created a, a windmill with a bicycle um, his dad's bicycle oh, okay. to yeah. bring in water for the drought, you know, and people were cutting down all the trees. And so we're telling him, he he's like, well, why are they cutting down the trees? And I was like, well, they don't have any water. So they're trying to get money and the people sold mm-hmm. their land so that they can cut the trees down. And then we started talking to him about why the trees are important. And there was a program that Los Angeles uh, mayor at the time, Mayor Antonio Villagrosa, was doing with the, the Green Program about planting trees. Mm-hmm. The Million Trees Initiative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was a part of that, and I was like, Davey, so whenever you could plant a tree, plant a tree. So, <laughs> you know, but it's all about that education. Absolutely. So are you guys getting those younger folks to you know be more aware are you bringing the kids in at that you know young uh, uh, level it's uh it's funny you should mention that because that that is an area of focus for us i think much more going forward um i've done work with LAUSD in the past um we've had a green schools initiative for many years where we actually uh, we source micro projects from schools so uh, schools can propose, you know, five hundred or thousand dollar project they might have on site, and then we do a green uh, green schools day. It's called a Green Apple Day of Service for us, where our volunteers come in and help do the work on site at these schools. Uh, we're really looking to grow that initiative for us because five hundred or thousand dollars to do school projects can actually go a long way. And um, you know, the the data again is pretty surprising. You look at like water quality and water fountains at schools, the lack of green space. You know, you're talking about trees. Uh, it's actually amazing in the city. They're just doing the kind of tree studies here on, as, on the city level. They need to do. There's an organization called City Plants uh, that uh, recently presented at one of our board meetings, and the tree stock in LA is actually getting really, really old, and we're not doing enough to replace it fast enough. And so trees have a life, just like mm-hmm. anything else. Um, so not only are the trees that we do have getting old, but we have 40% less tree cover wow. than most normal cities. And a lot of the developments that you're mentioning here. There's a lot of development going on. It's actually reducing a lot of our um, trees and green space in a lot of areas. And so we really need to look at how do we incorporate more trees, more urban green space, urban agriculture, green roofs, and things like that in our environment because those things all reduce heat load, reduce our need to have more cooling. And for young people, I think the story you tell is beautiful because you know, as kids, we see a lot of these things, right? And there's that kind of innovation happening because they don't have the – the mental restrictions and boundaries that we build for ourselves over mm-hmm. over a lifetime of things that can't be done for whatever reason. Uh, and to explain those things, I mean, if you think about the generation now that's growing up, I mean, I think about my son. I have a son who's, who's five and a half. Uh, I talk to him about these kinds of things. So when he gets older, I think his perspective is going to be very different. Yes. When we were growing up, we weren't being talked to all no. the time about resource <laughs> scarcity and green living and organic food. Right. Like, like, yeah, it just didn't matter. But, you know, you look at the generations coming of age now, they're much more aware. I think about 
my son's going to be so much more aware and will actually need to be. If you look at Mm -hmm. where climate change is headed, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I don't know if your listeners need to know this or not, but uh, all the data that's come out this year about climate change and the fact that we really kind of have 12 years at this point to try Mm -hmm. to make an impact uh, is scary. It's a big deal. You know, Um, people used to talk for a lot of time, oh, is climate change real or not? Mm -hmm. You know, all the data shows that it's very real. And as as human beings, our our capability to understand how something's happening on a grand scale Mm -hmm is very low. And I actually think when we're going to look back on this time in human history, we're going to realize that climate change was actually happening for uh, hundreds of years. Yeah. We were just having fires or even, you know, everything's so sensitive. When the Industrial Revolution happened, we were actually causing changes in our world on a grand scale. Our capacity to understand that was so little. And we're, I think we're going to get to a place where, you know, they say we have 12 years to make a difference in the, in the global degree change. You, you how, need to do now. <laughs> what can we do in 12 years mm-hmm. to really shift society? That's... Mm-hmm. That's scary, right? Because we mm-hmm. think sit here and we're like, hey, what did we do in the last 12 years? Eh, we made progress, but we didn't create global change on the scale we need to. So uh, we need to start thinking about how do we do things faster? Mm-hmm. What does does adaptation look like? Mm-hmm. You know, we've been living in this area where we're trying to, to mitigate the, the, the changes. The reality is a lot of these changes are probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. The things that we're doing now to try to reduce our resource use, to create greener buildings, to create healthier environments – those are things we're going to need to do to actually continue to survive and grow uh, as a society. Um, and that's part of being resilient, like we mm-hmm. were talking about later, because the human race is going to need to adapt. Because I'd love to sit here and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to stop climate change in the next 12 years. But I think the reality is that we're probably not going to do that. Right. But we need to continue to fight even harder because what happens after that is that much worse. Right? Adapt or die. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, have you gone to the museum in Chicago uh, in Hyde Park? The Museum of Science and Industry, I believe it is. Oh, actually, I didn't. I haven't been there in many years, but I have been there before. So they have a glacier there. They have a whole uh, um, setup about you know climate change, and mm. my son could put put his hand on the glacier, and that's awesome. Um, and there's a, a photographer who captured. You know, glaciers just m- melting mm. and just breaking off at a tremendous rate than ever before in life. And he showed the before picture, and then a year later, it was like there's no glacier there. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, and our waters are rising, mm. and what's going to happen? And is I mean, it's very hands on. So if you ever go there, go go see it. It's so mind-blowing that you know my son was like oh wow well what happened to all the snow you know what's what's going on you know how how can we change this how Mm -hmm. can we as human beings make a change because it affects so much and you know we're this is espn we talk about sports it affects all sports Mm -hmm. as well you know it's we're all connected no we 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 very much are And, and i think you know the exhibit you described you know, I, I think it's it's amazing how something like that can have the ability to cut through the noise to bring something home for people. Uh, one of the programs I, I helped launch at the LA Clean Tech Incubator was an artist in residence program, where we actually brought in three artists every six months to focus on a different topic of climate change. And the program's in its second year now because art has an amazing ability to do what you just yes. said. To you know, someone you could talk to someone about climate change, you're blue in the face, and that's how is someone going to understand something mm-hmm. on such a big scale? But then you see a piece of art. And all of a sudden, it hits home in yeah. that moment. And so that's part of why we started that program there, um, because I think over time, we can build a portfolio of art 
um, that's really focused on climate change um, so people can really understand that in a way that's going to be meaningful for them. And that, again, comes back to awareness, and that's you know what we're trying to do here at, at uh, U.S. Green Building Council Los Angeles is create that kind of awareness for people um, and the things that you see around you. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's so important to keep doing that. So, Ben, what do you think about the the buildings, the fan base that the buildings we're building for sports arenas now and how are they contributing to our environment? That's a, that's a great question. And it's funny you mentioned that. I recently went to um, a virtual tour of the new L.A. Stadium and Entertainment Center. I think Laser is what they're, it's kind of the abbreviation for it, for the, you know, for the Rams and the, and the Chargers. Um, and I'll, I'll do this with an asterisk because the, the tour I went on was one of the tours where they're trying to sell people like the new stuff that's happening and they're doing like an early preview. But I was actually really surprised at the lack of sustainability in their presentation. Mm. I'm working to set up a follow-up tour where I'm going to bring the U.S. Green Building Council and our member base to come, and I'm going to ask them to really talk about the sustainable aspects of the buildings. But I don't think we're talking about enough still, to be honest with you. Like, again, here at, at uh, the Staples Center, you know, AEG's done a great job of getting a lot of great things in place for these facilities. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many people really know that when they come here. And it's not easy to create that kind of awareness, right? You can put a sign on a wall. Someone's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to read it when they're walking by, you know, with their hot dog during the game. Um, but how do we get the players talking about it, right? How do we create more media around it so that people understand, like, hey, this is everything we're doing to really make this a more livable, healthier, sustainable experience for everyone. Right. Uh, and so I think we need to continue to challenge. You, know, you look at all this new development that's happening out there and the amounts of money that are being thrown at these things. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that the right percentage of that is going to things that are going to create a long-term healthy value for us as a region. And I'll use that project as an example. Again, my asterisk is they were given a virtual tour and it was mm-hmm. all about the hype. But there was very they, – they, they said almost nothing about the sustainability of the project. And that really blew me away in this day and age. And I think that's part of our challenge. I think you know maybe 10 years ago people talked about green buildings, maybe a little bit more. Right now, at least in our industry, everyone's talking about electrification and electric cars and EVs, and that's all important. But 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions still come from buildings. It's the largest category. Um, we need to continue to talk about that and push that as an issue and make it front and center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what do you see for the future of your organization? Like, how how are you going to push forward to through some of those challenges that you have. Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think we're going to look at broadening our message. Um, you know, we want to be a home for everyone who cares about sustainability. Um, buildings are really just a basis for that. Um, we're going to create more local engagement through our branches and our communities. And we're really going to focus on how do we educate and create a really consistent pipeline of talent, of people coming out of local schools and universities, high schools, middle schools, going back as, as young as we can go so that they can continue to get educated and grow in their awareness and skill set to address mm-hmm. these issues. And then we're going to continue to come up with innovative programs to help solve problems. You know, we talked about this, this program we have, uh, and as a response to the wildfires, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, there was a market need there, people who needed more information, mm-hmm. needed education, needed help doing something. You know, we built a program with a partner to help address that. Um, we need to continue to do more of that. And I, I've seen in my career, especially over the last five or six years, how possible it really is when you have a good idea to help solve a problem. And a lot of people come 
who who see the value there and you can create a vision, you, you can work hard and get funding. You can work hard and create that change and establish something. Uh, I have a few stories around that I, I could tell. Um, and I think we need to do that as an organization because you know we're about buildings, placemaking, uh, and the experience of being at a place, experiencing a building, whether it's a stadium or sports arena or something else. We're all human beings again, and that's a very real, tangible experience. We learn so much from going into a building and going to a place. Even some of the stories you've told about you know, this museum in Chicago or other places, you learn so much more going through that experience mm-hmm. than you might read learn in an article or reading something. So um, the built environment is the best place, I think, to really to really touch people around that and, and create that awareness. Now, the there are a lot of projects that are happening now, and uh, I know – are you aware of the parks that they're building over the highways here? Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Do you think you guys are going to have, I know you talk about buildings, but anything to do with that or help in that instance? Um, I, I think we definitely could. You know, there's, um, first of all, how, how you build a project like that. There's a very sustainable way to go about sourcing the materials, the construction process. Um, how do you remove what's there right now when you do demo work to build to build that kind of project? You know, that's a very expensive project to build a build yeah. a park over a freeway. Um, you might might argue that there's there's less expensive ways to have that kind of impact. Uh, but I think urban green space and urban agriculture is going to be an issue of ours that we're really going to focus on over the next few years as well, mm-hmm. um, because you know. Plants in our environment, whether they're growing food or they're just for looking at, they purify our air. There's a lot of data that shows that it makes us feel better as mm-hmm. people and reduces our stress level. If we can grow food on a localized level, that reduces transportation costs. You look at some of the amazing technology coming out right now in urban ag, and it's pretty mind-blowing. I've worked mm-hmm. with a few companies at the incubator. I ran an urban, uh, an urban ag and food cluster at LACI for a while. And there's some great work happening right now. And if we can empower people with some tools to grow food on a local basis, uh, to create green space in their environment, to purify their air and mm-hmm. make them feel better, um, I think that can actually have a pretty dramatic impact. And you know, you look at um, – there's a lot of, been a lot of talk over the years about cool roofs and white roofs yes. reducing heat load. Um, there's some mixed science around that. In general, yes, it's better. But green roofs, if you do green roofs, all the data shows that that's the best thing you could possibly do for our roof areas because – if you have plants on the rooftops, not only are they absorbing the sunlight, but they're purifying the air. Um, you know, they're they're really doing a lot of healthy things altogether. Um, so I, I think looking at ways we can increase the number of urban green spaces is is going to continue to be yeah. important. Uh, I know that the local grocery store in uh, North Hollywood they were redoing their pavement for that heat pavement. Oh, the heat island. They're, yeah. In fact, they're doing cool pavement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah cuz I was like, why is this? Why is the you know parking lot look? Funny, like, because it was kind of like whitish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I didn't know if it was my eyes because I'm older. I need my glasses. <laughs> I'm like, something's going on. And then, of course, you know, my husband was like, well, they're installing the green. <laughs> so he really is a green building nerd. This is good. This is good. I know cool pavement's uh, a, a thing. Um, I actually worked on a pilot project where we, um, it's still ongoing right now. We tested out five different kinds of cool pavement applications. Um, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to make those things last long term. You have to be careful sometimes in the areas where you put them because they do reflect light. Yeah. You know, what does that look like? Um, but in general, they reduce the heat amount a huge, you know, a huge amount. I mean, I think it's as much as 10 to 20 percent uh, reduction in heat load. And um, especially when you look at how much black space we have. Yes. 
And, you know, you look at the number of days over 100 degrees that we're having. And, you know, actually, I went to high school in North Hollywood. Like, North Hollywood now is so much hotter than it was yeah. when I was in high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? But uh, my husband was also saying that they're, they're building the pavement where it collects the rainwater mm-hmm. as well. Porous pavement, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, we need... <laughs> We need more people like that. We need more people to oh, pervious. Per- I'm sorry, pervious. pervious? Payment. Yeah, uh, the so that's actually required. I think by law in the next few years, a certain amount of your 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 pavement cover needs to be uh, pervious so that rainwater can go into the soil mm. in your homes instead of just running off into the, into yes. the gutter. Yeah. Well, this has been truly enlightening. Ben, tell us how we can find out more about U.S. Green Building Council Los Angeles and how we can take part. Um, well, you can go to our website, so usgbc-la.org. Uh, we have information on our training and our classes. Uh, we have information on our events. Um, as I said, we have local branches throughout the whole region, and we welcome anybody to come out to an event. We tour a lot of innovative buildings to showcase what's happening out there. You know, Join us for a tour. Join us for an event. Uh, we have committees that, that focus on a wide variety of issues from, from green schools to the legacy project I mentioned earlier. And we have volunteers that contribute so much to our organization. And uh, we'd welcome everyone to come out and, and contribute any way you can. Uh, we're all here to help create a, a better L.A. For, for everyone. Yeah, and definitely go there uh, to their website. Check out the Green Janitor Education Program and the GPRO Correct. Uh, G-Pro is some of our classes that we offer, huh? G-Pro, Green Fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Your Resilience Education Annual Legacy uh, Project, and uh, the Tech Accelerator Program, as well as the Women in Green Breakfast, as well. So thank you so much for thank sharing you. Thank you. your information, and congratulations on your, on your new position. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's been great to be here. I'm Laferne Cusack. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Please join me next week when we have more great guests here on ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.